Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It's the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Before we get started today, I want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Welcome on to Hollinger and Duncan. Great to have you back here after another week of playoff action. And John and I want to wrap it all up and then look ahead to this next week. So I I guess uh, where we can start here is just take stock of where we are at this point and what is most stood out to you over the last week of action here, John? You know, I think it's been notable for the lack of surprises more than anything, right? The, I mean, the biggest surprise is probably how dominant offense has been, which is a thing we didn't necessarily expect coming out of the long layoff. But beyond that, the favorites still look like the favorites, right? We, we, haven't, we haven't seen a lot to really challenge what our perceptions might have been coming into this. So... Do you feel that way about the Bucks in particular? I think a, a lot of people seem kind of down on the Bucs. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but what are your thoughts? No, I I mean, they didn't play well in game one, obviously, but then they did exactly what we would have expected the last four games of that series. I think we'll get a lot more answers about what the Bucks are in this Miami series, but certainly if you had a prior that the Bucks were the number one or number two team in the league, there was nothing that happened in the first round that would move you off of that prior, in my opinion. Yeah, but by the same token, if you believe that they have some vulnerabilities that could potentially be exploited by better opponents in the future, I don't know that what we've seen so far would have given you much more hope in what they're going to do either. That's fair. I mean, you could say the same thing, though, about uh, the Lakers or even the Clippers. I mean, if you had harbored doubts about them coming in, you would probably still have those doubts, right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the Lakers got their offense together at least, right? It, there's a, they had some really explosive performances. Granted, against Portland, that you're kind of doing what you should be doing to have an explosive performance against them. But they at least they evolved over the course of the series. They played better. Um, they, they left really no doubt in the end. Um, whereas, and so like they kind of seem to shore up some of their vulnerabilities and then for the Clippers Kawhi Leonard is playing so incredibly well and they also have still had injuries I mean maybe that's part of your concern is that they've been missing players uh, particularly Patrick Beverly and see how important he is but they were able to overcome missing him and and evolve to find a way to defend Luka Doncic and Dallas as the series went on so I, I do feel slightly better about the Lakers and Clippers than the Bucks relative to expectations, but that's also because those teams like played real teams and the Bucks didn't. It's it's hard when you play a series that you know you're going to win too. 
Like, I just don't think, like, the did the Bucks ever really have to dig deep and find their A game? I mean, maybe in game two. Yeah, if you're and that's not a home game. You know, they probably they, there was something there, obviously, and I mean, certainly the Bucks more than anyone else uh, was were very much affected by the events in Kenosha. I mean, with that being so close to Milwaukee and them leading the walkout and stuff, they clearly had stuff on their mind that was bigger than basketball. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it doesn't it doesn't really change much for what what I feel about the Bucks ultimately. But they also it wasn't like they just totally dominated and took care of business. Although it is weird to say that about a team that won its last four games by 14 points or more. Yeah. Yeah. For, I mean, for the series, you might worry a little about, you know, you look at that turnover rate and think, yeah, what's, what's going to happen against better competition with that? Um, you know, nitpick here and there, but I, I think really like this Miami is, is much more of a test uh, like not a great matchup, a team that beat them a couple times in the regular season. Uh, I, I think we'll learn a lot more about Milwaukee's ultimate destiny over these next uh, week to 10 days. Yeah, and I'm particularly interested to see their offense. What was your pick in that series? I have Milwaukee in six. Okay, I, I went five, which I think I think six is probably the consensus among most places mm -hmm. that I've seen. Um, And I went five. I kind of was just, I'm making a bet on just Milwaukee just being better than they've shown you know Giannis was playing 29 minutes a game in this yeah. other series and I, they're just yeah Miami you know maybe you can make the argument that they're way better than they showed in the regular season and that they've made these adjustments with Bam now starting and they've got some guys to stop them but you know when Duncan Robinson might be your best offensive player in this series <laughs> like yeah he's he's good but there's yeah and he in theory stresses out the Bucks defense with his ability to shoot threes above the break and come off the screens but i'm i'm still i think that there's no way that miami is going to score enough against them so that's it's kind of a bet on just more of what we saw in the regular season how good this bucks team was their ability to hopefully ramp up the minutes although Giannis's foul trouble could be an impediment there so i that's that was kind of my thinking uh, on that one um i you know i think if it goes in in a direction though it'll be six and i understand why people are saying yeah. six but um I, I don't think that this miami team is good enough to be you know beat a team that was an all-time great team in the regular season or but we'll see I, I agree with your basic premise that i don't think miami can score enough on them i think they may have enough randomness in the three-point shooting uh that you know they can get one or two games where jay crowder goes seven of 12 from three right <laughs> and they yeah and they end up winning that way but that, that not consistently over a series um, so let's talk a little bit about this, like favorites chalk so far, uh, to what do you attribute that? If anything other than randomness, uh, you could argue that the lack of home court has made series chalkier because it's introduced less variance, perhaps on a day to day basis. And so it, it's, it's an argument at least now, on the other hand, it's eliminated the game seven advantage that Denver would have, let's say, uh, tomorrow. But these haven't even gone seven games. I mean, it, we'll see what happens with Houston and OKC. But the other thing is, I mean, these series on paper coming in weren't supposed to be close, right? I mean, Dallas and the Clippers was probably the one matchup outside of the four or five and, uh, and three six that you thought might be close. And then Dallas didn't have Porzingis. So, and, and that still went six games. So, 
I think, you know, ultimately it's, it's ending up chalky. I mean, Miami was the one, uh, theoretical underdog. They were the five seed that, that has advanced. We'll see what happens in Denver, Utah. But everyone had them, right? Yeah, exactly. We'll see what happens with Denver, Utah and Houston, OKC. I mean, Utah winning would be probably the one anti-chalk thing. You were one of the few people who picked Utah. Uh, but I, I also think, I mean, that's just how the NBA is a lot. I mean, typically, in, in a typical postseason of the 15 series, four of them will be won by a team without home court advantage. So it, it usually is pretty chalky, especially in, in the first round. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think you know the one thing that really surprised me was OKC coming back to tie it from down 2-0. Uh, although, you know, both of those games were very close games at the end, and Houston was largely in control of the three games that they have won. So, uh, you know, that's, that series may not actually be as close as it has uh, appeared at times. And uh, I guess the, the one thing you could say about the chalk, too, is four 50-point games in a series, and, you know, the greatest three-point shooting uh, series ever by the Jazz and Nuggets. You probably yeah. didn't see coming, particularly from the Nuggets no, side. Not a, so not not at all. It's been amazing. It's yeah. such a shame this series has been played at two o'clock in the afternoon because the, I mean this has been the series to watch. I mean with the with the fireworks from from Mitchell and Murray. I mean Game Three accepted. Most of the games have been really uh, competitive, like on the edge of your seat in the fourth quarter. Uh, game One in particular was was fantastic. Game Five was fantastic. So it's just been a great series. I'm really excited to see what happens in Game 7. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think I wanted to ask you this. I tweeted this yesterday. Can you remember an overall series that has had, like, this level of three-point shooting? Like, any other series from, like, both teams just over sustained over the course of the series? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, maybe, there, maybe there was one somewhere in the annals of history. But then also, I mean, it's the volume, too. I mean, these guys are taking – you know, almost half their shots from distance and, and hitting at this clip. 46% of Utah's shots have been threes, you know, uh, 42% of Denver's shots. That's, that's, uh, yeah, 42% of Denver's shots. Like they never take threes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, both of them got to be shooting like 43% from three from the series. Like I, I, yeah. I haven't looked it up. No, I mean, it's, it's almost exactly that. I actually wrote about it for the athletic I, in a story that will probably be out by the time people listen to this podcast. Uh, on on this insane series, uh, but but yeah, both teams are shooting in the mid forties. One of the things we love to do in basketball is follow players over the course uh, of their career. Maybe there's someone that you really like in the draft, or you know someone is going to a really good situation, or you think someone has a, a lot of upside. Well, Prediction Strike lets you capitalize uh, on that. It lets fans create portfolios to bet on the development of their favorite athletes, almost like a, a real stock. Visit predictionstrike.com to create an account. Then you can deposit funds so you can trade based on the performance of your favorite players. The value of these stocks will change based upon game performance, and you can trade at any time as long as the player isn't currently in a game. If you really thought Jamal Murray or Donovan Mitchell was going to break out in these playoffs, you'd have done pretty well at Prediction Strike so far. So get started at PredictionStrike.com, sign up with the code PER, easy to remember because John invented PER, and get an additional $10 with your first deposit of $20 or more at PredictionStrike.com. Don't forget that code PER to let them know that you came from us. 
David Harrison here, the Locked on Washington football team podcast, celebrating with you a 21-grain salute to a less boring sandwich thanks to Dave's Killer Bread. I don't know about you guys, but when I eat pizza, I eat it for the toppings, not the crust. And when I eat a sandwich, it's for what's inside the bread, not for the bread. But when I throw a sandwich on 21 whole grains and seeds, thin sliced bread from Dave's Killer Bread, it is the epitome of addition by subtraction. That thin sliced bread lets me focus on what's inside the sandwich, but also adds to the sandwich with killer taste, killer texture, killer nutrition, a subtle sweetness, and a seed coated crust. Dave's Killer Bread is America's number one organic bread bread for a reason it tastes so stinking good dave's killer bread is made with the highest quality organic and non-gmo ingredients and is power packed with whole grains fiber and protein visit daveskillerbread.com to learn more and look for dave's killer bread in the bread aisle of your local grocery store so would you now change your overall predictions at all i asked you that last week has anything happened to change that at, at all for you just to, as far as what's, what are going to happen what's going to happen later in the playoffs still chalky for me i'm still deciding how i feel about the rockets and lakers that's that's probably the one where i'm where i'm still scratching my head a little bit and, and trying to trying to watch houston trying to watch la and really really figure out how i feel about that matchup in that series like i think i think the lakers uh in a vacuum probably have a better team but it's not a great matchup for them and we know how playoff series can be dictated by by matchups, and I, so I just wonder about that one a little bit. I thought that getting Westbrook back was big for Houston because it gave James Harden more energy. I mean, I think the three days off helped too, but he looked so gassed at the end of games three and four, and he was really fresh out there in, in game five, and I thought that that aspect of it really gave them a lift as much as just the fact that Westbrook was back. Westbrook's gonna have to actually like play well though. He looked awful <laughs> there in, was, in game five. There, there was that little fly in the ointment there for sure. Yeah. I, I I mean they need to like ship in some new backboards after some of these layups he's taking. <laughs> yeah, and the the pull ups too. Uh definitely a few dents around Jerry West's head. <laughs> but it so I guess the the seminal question of that series is gonna be how much are the Lakers going to adjust their lineups to go small against Houston? What do you think the answer to that is? I I think this is not a JaVale McGee series. I, I, I do think the Lakers end up going small. And it's hard because they, they're the one team that when they play big, you feel their size. I mean, it's it's yeah. not just like they Them have— Them in Milwaukee. Milwaukee would be the yeah. other one, obviously. It's not just like they have some random tall dudes out there. Like you just feel it. the floor feels small. It just feels like you can't do anything in the paint, uh, and that the vertical spacing is such a threat with the the two lob threats with McGee and and Davis. I mean, you definitely feel, and they don't really lose speed with that either. I mean, McGee is so fast up and down the court, and that they're still managed to be a good transition team even when they play big. So I. I understand their inclination toward playing big. I just feel like by the time they get to game three, game four, they're going to be forced into going small by, by all the switching and all the, uh, all the, all the attacks they face at the other end from Harden and Westbrook. Well, part of why I think they need to go small is so that they can play big, like so that Anthony Davis has enough room to really eat on offense and just yeah. kill whoever is guarding him, right? Like Anthony Davis being guarded by Robert Covington, for example, like he's going to just kill 
anybody who's on him one-on-one other than pj tucker who, who does a great job on him but they obviously can run some plays to get tucker off of him very easily yeah. with the switching yeah exactly exactly or even cross screening i mean <laughs> you know depending on how they play that um yeah and and you're right if you have enough if you have four perimeters around him now will the rockets just double and gamble that the lakers can't make shots that's that's the other half of this yeah, and going small obviously helps you there a, a little bit as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Lakers will be trying to hit the offensive glass. Uh, you know, the, the Rockets have always been vulnerable there. Um, and I think that the other thing that's going to be huge is anytime, if the Lakers decide to switch themselves, you know, do they feel comfortable with AD guarding Harden? I think AD can actually do a really good job yeah. on Harden. Well, and, will, will, yeah. will, the, will the Rockets set any screens next series? I mean, they kind of yeah. they kind of were forced to by by Lugens Dort in this series, but I don't think I don't think the Lakers have a Dort on their team. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know if like Harden wants to ISO against like Danny Green, KCP. You know, on the other hand, maybe Kuzma against Harden will be fascinating. LeBron against Harden. There's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff in that series. And then the other thing I'm watching too is when AD or another big for the Lakers challenges a shot sprinting the floor afterwards to get a fast break and LeBron throwing those 90 foot passes yeah. to him. Um, yeah. that, I think that can really kill Houston. Um, especially if James Harden falls down or is complaining to the referee or, that he didn't yeah. get a, a, yeah. a Try, three tries shot foul. to get the three shot foul for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, Houston, that's the Achilles heel that nobody talks about with Houston, even being as small as they are, they suck at transition defense uh, Harden and Westbrook in particular loaf back all the time. They have two guys in the corner all the time. So th- that's definitely a weakness in the Lakers when their first group is in, especially are really good at exploiting transition opportunities. Yeah. I think LeBron uh, can also really eat uh, and you want to go small so that he can use his size advantage and then find guys on the perimeter. Also, like he can't really post up when there's AD and another big in there as well so I, i'm i am i'm leaning towards lakers in that series but i really want to see how westbrook looks in game six are we dismissing okc too early or you think they're just totally done here i mean that that's going to happen later today so we it's so sure we, felt, we may have egg on our faces yeah. when people listen to this and it's going to a game seven sure felt like houston figured them out in game five and i still think uh okc has been a little slow to get what i think is their best grouping out there which is replace the starters, but you replace Steven Adams with, with Schroeder. Uh, I think that's the one lineup where they can really, they, 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 it doesn't magnify Dort's weaknesses because you use Dort as your five almost. Yeah. And they, they did it once or twice in game, uh, five where they, I mean, there was one play where they had Dort set a screen and then slip it really quick and they just got him. It was like a jailbreak layup for him. And then they kind of never went back to it. Um, and just had him in the corner where like, okay, now you've just made the game super easy for James Harden. He's just going to hang out in the paint, pay no regard to Dort at all. He get, get, Give him a free pass on defense. And even even when Dort tried to catch and go off, off of those, it, it wasn't really a fact. There was one play where Westbrook not only didn't guard him at the three-point line, but just let him blow right by on the catch and go. And he, and he still like turned it over or whatever. Like a help defender came and he made the wrong decision. Like it, it was just completely ineffective. But I think he, if you get him kind of in situations where he's rolling and he can just kind of overpower the help, I think that makes him something of a threat. But you can't really do that when Steven Adams is out there with him. Well, you had in your organization the player who I would say is 
most Dort most reminds me of right now, which is, is Tony Allen, where it, I'm not saying Dort's quite at that level yet, mm-hmm. but and I also think that Tony had it was a different time, number one, and you know where Tony wasn't necessarily expected to stand out there and shoot threes in Memphis. You know they had years of experience in dealing with the fact that he couldn't shoot and he could cut along the baseline, and you had a good high post passer with Gasol and stuff like that. Um, but you know, Golden State kind of gave Tony Allen that treatment back in 2015. Yeah. I know you talked about that on Ethan's pod last week, but uh, I mean, what is the discussion like when you have this guy who you know you really need him for defense, but you could tell like Dort's confidence is really kind of waning, and, yeah. and he's you know what zero for ten or whatever it was on threes and three of sixteen for the game. It, like, what are the discussions like yeah. around the team the, when, so when you have that problem? The best thing you can do with a non-shooter is use him as a screener. The problem you run into, I mean, we ran into this. Like, we we have these other two bigs out there that kind of need to be the screener because what else are they going to do? Uh, so. If, if you have Zebo or Mark in the action, then what do you do with Tony Allen? Well, th- there's two things you can do. One, you can try to hide him in the corner and hope the other team guards him anyway, which uh, Houston is on to that little ruse. Uh, second thing you do is put him in the dunker spot where Tony Allen was pretty effective. Um, I don't think Dort's quite as effective doing that, um, but Tony had long arms. He could get up quickly. Like he, he almost operated as a big around the basket. He was a good offensive rebounder. Like We, we could get a little bit of mileage out of that. Um, and then the other thing was the, the catch and go where he's also struggled, but we, we would try to get the, uh, what we called the Maggetti cut after Corey Maggetti, where you have the guy rise up from the corner and kind of alternate and then catch the ball with a real running head of steam in the slot and go straight to the rim. Um, and that was the other thing we would try to do with him. And, uh, I mean, I, I think the catch and go, if you're not going to, if you're not going to have him be the screener, the catch and go is the next best thing. But even that was kind of disastrous in game five. Yeah, I mean, he he just, especially in that third quarter, he just like went into four guys and would turn it over. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the other, I mean, you mentioned the screener, like Golden State, for example, was able to get away with like Jordan Bell and Kavon Looney and Draymond. But number one, they had the institutional knowledge that, hey, if you're not being guarded, you know, Steph Curry, we're going to run you off a screen off the ball. And so Steph will get open for a three because the guy is not guarding Kevon Looney and now uh, he sets the screen on Steph and Steph is wide open. There's no one to switch on to him. OKC doesn't have that level of shooters. And I think more, even more importantly, they don't have that level of institutional knowledge to move off the ball and really deal with that. And even it they took just, those great Golden State teams so long to kind of figure that out. And, and they just and they just don't have anything in their in their toolbox that has player movement either. I, I mean, th- what what do they consistently go to where where there's a lot of movement where you where you really can force situations like that to begin with yeah there's not a lot there i agree with you built bar is back on the show and they've got six new amazing flavors caramel brownie cookies and cream cherry bar sia apple almond crisp including their 12 original flavors as well they are covered in 100 percent chocolate they're soft and easy to chew. It's not like these other protein bars that came out the back of a cement mixer. For example, peanut butter protein's got 19 grams of protein, 180 calories, only 5 grams of sugar, and 5 grams of net carbs. Most of the bars are, are right around that nutritional profile. They're great for health-conscious people because you can fill up with some protein. If you're feeling hungry, get some nutrients to build or maintain muscle. And it's a great way to quell your hunger so you don't end up eating a ton later. What's more, they will even give you a free cooler with 
purchase while supplies last. Go to builtbar.com and use the promo code locked on, the name of this network, and you'll get $10 off your next order. That's promo code locked on for $10 off at builtbar.com. Thanks again to rockauto.com for being the title sponsor of our show today. They're a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online now for 20 years. If you go to rockauto.com, you can shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers, whether it's engine control modules, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet for your car. Whether it's a classic or daily driver, you can get everything you need in just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The auto parts store is a miserable experience. They sure as heck don't have what you need for your car sitting out on the floor. So you have to go up to that counter. They enter it into a computer and they say, oh yeah, we got to order that. Well, why don't you just order it yourself from home for a cheaper price? RockAuto.com's prices are the same whether you're a mechanic or a do-it-yourselfer, and they are reliably low. They always offer the lowest prices possible, and you don't need a membership or an account login. I hate creating an account login for everything. So go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and make sure you write locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that you came from us. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need at rockauto.com. Let's uh, hit some of our other categories here that sure. we talked about. Um, some coaching stuff that you've liked over the past week or so. You know, coming into that Utah series, and we talked about it, that we thought Quinn Snyder had the advantage there. Mike Malone's holding up pretty well, man. Uh, I thought he, he – I mean, they still can't really guard Donovan Mitchell, but they showed enough looks at him in games five and six that they were able to get enough stops and make this a series. He's changed his lineup a couple different times, um, you know, really, really trying to find things. Um, and he actually went back to Michael Porter after he pulled him for his defense, and it actually – kind of worked having Porter replace Monty Morris. And I thought that was a key subtle thing in games five and six that he went back to that and having Porter on, usually it was Royce O'Neal, but having him be that weak side defender in the corner. Now all of a sudden when Gobert rolls, he's dealing with size. As long as Porter is aware of what the hell's going on, uh, that, that he has enough size to actually make that difficult for Gobert, and it kind of really subtracted Gobert from the list of players who were killing Denver. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm uh, really surprised that, you know, halfway through game five, Denver found something defensively. And yeah, you know what? Donovan Mitchell is killing them, but he's been killing them with like really difficult shots now. You know, yeah. it's it hasn't been just these walk into some wide open threes for Utah. I mean, Conley has been really good too. Like Utah's guys have shot it great from three. But they were like, you know, 37% from two for a large portion of, of that game six. They couldn't score in the second half of game five either. And I, I'm just floored by how they were suddenly able to have so much more resistance around the rim when in those first four games, you know, it was just a layup line around Jokic every time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've, they've moved him up and, and have him play, have him play a much more aggressive pick and roll coverage, but. Utah has also gone away from attacking him. It was surprising how much they did with either Mitchell ISO or guard guard screen and roll or a wedge pick and roll, but it wasn't just this straight Mitchell Gobert jailbreak that we saw in games like three and four, especially. No, I agree with you. I, and I think they need to get back to that. Um, tire Jokic out a little bit as well, make him guard a little bit more and just get, uh, get those quick pings. I mean, they weren't doing a good enough job of hitting the roll man 
on those plays also um you know the, with the pocket pass so when there is a double team at the point of attack and then they're just when they're trying to attack these matchups they're not going fast enough like they're just kind of all right we're gonna back it out we'll let you get set where i thought where they really had the most success going at guys like porter was as soon as you turn the corner and he switches onto you you're just going and you're blowing yeah. right by him yeah yeah they gave they've given him opportunities to use his size uh for sure and then i think denver's caught on to the fact that royce o'neal is not going to shoot and and that's allowed them to cheat more too yeah i mean when he shoots it it goes in pretty well but he just doesn't have the level of versatility to his jump shot he doesn't have that level of aggression that a, a lot of other guys do i think you're you're right about that but i mean the most credit probably really to me just has to go to guys like jeremy grant and Troy craig and Millsap, and even Jokic, who's just been you know not terrible in, in these yeah. last six quarters or so as as he had been before just those guys playing better you know and porter even playing at a passable level as opposed to Plumley actually gave him some good minutes in the first half especially oh yeah uh in 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 game six and yeah yeah i mean it's it's amazing how often play better is is the solution yeah with like actual energy uh, and just and all these layups now it's like yeah they're getting some of them but gobert is missing them he's being contested mitchell is being contested at the rim like they're not you know they're makeable shots but it's not just wide open no chance of missing them and so i i'm uh yeah i'm really impressed by denver i mean down 15 in the third quarter of game five i was ready to completely write them off i almost tweeted as much Mm -hmm. because they brought porter and he got cooked on like three straight possessions i'm like all right well that's it like they're done and then they somehow came back it was really an incredible effort absolutely and then what do you think uh about them defending is is uh is Jordan Clarkson the answer to, to stopping Jamal Murray? Yeah, I don't know, man. I I mean, I had Seth on yesterday, and we kind of talked about what adjustments they could do. But do you? What's your stance on this? Is it just like, hey, this can't be sustained? Like, you know, you, you're an analytics guy, it's an analytics background. Like, he's got to cool off at some point. These are impossible shots. Or are you like, no, like we have to do something differently here? Uh. I feel like it's gone on long enough that that it might be sustainable just because he he feels no discomfort I feel like right now. Yes. In in anything he's doing attacking these guys. He knows he can shoot. He knows when he gets Mitchell on him, like did you see last game the possessions Mitchell guarding him. He's just like, "Okay, everyone get out of my way. I got this." Like he yeah. he, he has no fear at all. Uh, of the, of that matchup. I don't think he has any fear at all of going at Ingles. Uh, I think O'Neal is supposed to be their defensive stopper has kind of gotten cooked when, when he's been on Murray. Um, yeah. at least they have to run a pick and roll when it's O'Neal though. Like at least Murray's yeah. not going to go at O'Neal one on one, but once they get to the pick and roll, it's worked fine too. Yeah. And like I thought it was instructive toward the end when I don't know if you remember Murray got the ball toward half court and scored on a runner and he kind of went back to, Tory Craig after the play and said, "Don't don't set a screen for me. Like, don't even bother bringing your guy over." I remember and, that. Yeah, and and I mean, it was Niang, right? Like normally, like that's the guy you'd you'd want to involve in a switch or whatever. Because I think Murray knew, like, I can take this guy one on one, and I don't want them to trap me. Which I think is the next step for Utah is to think about how and when they trap this guy. Obviously, you don't want to trap him with Gobert necessarily and give Jokic an open run, but. You could do some. Did you notice toward the end they had O'Neal on Jokic so they could switch it? Um, 
but I I thought maybe that they would try to trap it uh, at some point. But the problem is, if you get Jokic four on three, that's pretty dangerous too. No, I I agree with you. I think you definitely should trap it when they're when it's not Jokic. You know, they had some success with other guys setting the screen, particularly in Game Five. Mm-hmm. But I think if you don't have O'Neal on him, I think I would just particularly when he starts going on one of the. I mean, because like he'll go on these runs where he just scores fifteen points in a row. Right. Like he's not getting it throughout the course of the game. He'll just like get these incandescent moments. And so I think at that point, you just got to try getting the ball out of his hands, which, yeah, you don't want to open that up. Uh, but you know, I I think I'm at least, I'd rather have Jeremy Grampy, although to be fair, he has, but I I would have bet on him pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would certainly. I would seriously think about having, you know, whoever's guarding Tory Craig just pick Murray up at half court and just make him get rid of the ball. Yeah. Well, why not, right? Like, uh, yeah, Tory Craig is out there or, you know, even someone like Porter, like, is he really going to make a play? Like, he was a little bit off in the last game. Like, just, yeah. just give them something else. So, cause yeah, like you're saying, it's all about being comfortable, right? Like, yeah. just fi- find a way that he, they're just not as comfortable because, that's what it's been to, for Murray. And maybe you have to, when you talk about like, oh, is this sustainable or not? Maybe you have to say, well, hey, with no travel, the shooting background being better, like maybe maybe this is the new normal, right? Like maybe this is, you can't just say that the normal laws of physics apply in the bubble right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about Hacka Plumley? <laughs> oh, man. How how dare you even bring that up? This has been like one of the most entertaining series in years, and you, you're going to bring this I'm up. Gonna, now. I'm how, how dare you? Bum everybody out with hack of I mean, when they're getting 1.2 points per possession, don't you at least have to look at that? If uh, if Murray's on the court at the same time as Plumley, yeah, I, I mean, and because Murray, like, is he going to get tired? I think uh, I, one thing that might be underrated is like I think that that break of three days in the middle of the playoffs and you're playing every other day really helped a lot of guys like Harden. Yeah. Murray was able to play 43 minutes uh, and probably would have played more, frankly. Like, do you notice Malone just like left him in at the start of the second when they were down 10, just because he's like, there's no tomorrow. We can't yeah. score without this guy. Like we got to yeah. just, uh, yeah. I, uh, or may- maybe, uh, you know, just like put your smallest guy in Plumlee and like bait him into posting up or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. I think there's actually only been like one Plumlee post up in the entire series. Hilariously. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah, we need we need we need more of that. What, like, what's your? Sorry, go ahead. Like especially when Tony Bradley's in the game too. It's just like you know, <laughs> like you're not winning these minutes. But like hack a Plumlee, you know. That's that that that's your way of getting out of this alive. Um. Now, what's your prediction for Game Seven? I feel like. Denver has a little bit of the upper hand right now. I feel like they have more guys they can trust to put on the court. Um, and I, I feel like they figured more things out as the series has gone on. And I don't know if you, I don't know if Utah got like a false sense of confidence being up three one and up 15 in game five, but I just, just watching them these, these last two games. I don't know. Maybe I'm overreacting to the most recent thing. Utah has outscored them on the series. They have Conley back. But I, I just like how Denver looks right now. Well, I did pick Utah in seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no home court advantage in the, in the last game. Obviously, you would, you would pick Denver if this yeah. were a, a normal home court advantage series. I think I'm going to stick with Utah just because I trust their spot up shooters to make shots more than Denver's and continue to make shots. Like if you want to say, you know, Murray, Mitchell, like those guys have relatively canceled each other out. I think that'll continue to be the case. And, 
you know, I, I do have some hope that Quinn Snyder can kind of figure things out offensively to where they can actually make a two point field goal. And they got to do something differently against Murray. You would think like they do have some more options. I think Gobert has done a pretty good job against Jokic. That's another guy who's hitting everything from yeah. three, by the way, in this series, which, you know, he's a 30% three point shooter during the season. Yeah. So I, I do, I like Utah a little better. The one thing that concerns me, I, I mean, and also just over the course of the series, Utah has been by far the better team, right? Like Denver, this is the first like semi-comfortable Denver win. They had another two that, you know, game one, Utah should have won that. Like this actually should have been a sweep. But mm-hmm. yeah, the momentum is on Denver's side. I'm going to try not to overreact to that too much. But obviously I could see it going either way. What do you think of Millsap this series? Yeah, he had like 14 points in the first half. And I want to say it was game four. I do think he has played an important role in just like allowing them to not get killed at the rim anymore. Like he and Grant together. Like Mm -hmm. I do think the series changed a little bit when Malone is just like, I'm going to put my best defensive group out there at the start of game four. And like, they actually, they just, they made Utah feel them at least a little bit, but no, I I don't think he should be closing in, particularly with the way that Grant has been shooting it. Uh, But I mean, maybe the one reason to believe more in Denver is I think even having like a limited Gary Harris, giving them another rotation piece defensively is pretty big. I thought he played well defensively in game six. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just another guy who can give them something. And because of who he is, Utah is probably going to guard him more than they would guard, say, PJ Dozier or, or KBD or one of these other guys that they might put in. Um, any other like coaching stuff from from other series that uh, stood out to you? Uh, I I thought it was interesting that in uh, Game Five, uh, the Thunder finally realized they didn't have to wait until the five and a half minute mark of the of the half to put Schroeder in, and then he immediately goes and gets ejected. <laughs> Who are you starting in that series now? If if you're Donovan, you're gonna just take Adams out? I think you just I think you just take Adams out. I mean, as hard as that is, like. <laughs> What are you waiting for? Like, put put your best team out there and give it your best shot. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Dort might just be – I think I would actually not start Dort for a that, couple of That would be the other option is to not start Dort. And then you're trying to uh, match when he does play against when Harden plays. But you do it more you, – you kind of try to hide him in stretches so that they forget that they're supposed to ignore him and, and yeah. make the whole game plan about him. That, that's That's definitely an option, yeah. Right, and just let him come into a game that already has its rhythm a little bit where your first three plays of the game aren't going to be Lou Dort missed wide open threes. Right, right, yeah. And you can also score, like that's your best offensive unit probably. I still like Adams better offensively than, than Dort. And you know, mm-hmm. Adams is particularly seems to be have a lot of energy early in games on the offensive glass. So their problem is when they can't score in this series more so even than the defense and they couldn't stop anybody in game five anyway, even with Dort. So I might just start there. And also Schroeder has been so good. So he was, he was the one guy who really had it going in that game. So I'm, uh, that, that would be my advice, but there's really, they just have too many one way players. Yeah. Big, big surprise. Oklahoma City, too many one way players. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what do you, what's your thoughts on Boston Toronto after game one? Really played out mostly how I expected. I mean, Boston, uh, Boston was pretty disciplined getting back against them. Uh, I thought Smart held up really well as a Siakam defender. 
and and that was an advantage for for Boston. The shooting isn't going to be the difference isn't going to be as pronounced in the upcoming games, but just how does Toronto score against these guys in the half court is it's an issue for them. Yeah, and particularly in light of a game in which both teams were playing hard in the regular season bubble as well, which played out in somewhat similar fashion to this. Yeah. Boston is not going to shoot this well in every game. So I think in those games, Toronto will be in it. But I'm just not sure how Toronto can blow out Boston. Yeah, over seven games, you have to think is advantage Boston. And that that was how I felt coming in. And both the, the game they played in the bubble and game one here, it not only reinforced my belief, but the way the game played out, the score was was what it was for the exact reasons that we thought. Yeah. Like there wasn't some outlier fluke thing that happened. It was like, oh yeah, Boston will take away their transition. Toronto can't score them in the half court, and Boston will make enough three pointers to to make them play pay for their aggressiveness. Yep, uh, check. <laughs> right, that, that's pretty much how it played out. So I think the only wild card is. Boston is one sprained ankle from disaster because of how thin they are. But as long as they keep their top five guys healthy, I think they're in great shape. Yeah, I agree with you there. And Jared Weiss uh, wrote about this, your colleague at The Athletic, of how they took advantage of Toronto's guards pinching in and trying to force turnovers. They did get 22 turnovers, but uh, Boston 10 of 13 on corner threes during the competitive portion of the game. And it's really those that number of corner threes more than the makes, whereas Toronto is not getting the, that same quality of looks from three, even if they're getting up a lot of shots there. So I, I thought that yeah. that was pretty good. But, you know, Nick Nurse is going to have some other things in his pocket. He, he's they have a lot of variability in what they can do defensively. Um, any other coaching stuff that's uh, popped out to you a little bit? I don't know if it's a coaching thing, but I thought Kemba Walker was awesome on defense. And he doesn't get a lot of attention for it, but a lot of the stuff that's designed to like get you matched up against a small guard just didn't work against him. No, I agree. I think he's always, I mean, when he had such a load in Charlotte, it was hard for him. But I thought even compared to most of these high volume guards, he, he just, he tries, he executes the scheme. Yeah. Like he took, it took a charge on Siakam in transition. Like he's given his stature. I mean, he's even smaller than like a Steph Curry, for example. I think he really deserves a lot of credit for how much effort he puts in on that end. And how much uh, of a beating he takes. He, yeah. he he throws his body in there and he gets knocked down a lot. Yeah, one potential concern maybe is, you know, it looked like Kemba's knee might have flared up a little bit at yeah. one point. Yep, in that third quarter for sure. So that's, uh, that's a little bit worrisome. Um, another coaching thing. That I want to keep my eye on. I think Seth is actually writing about this for today at the athletic is, uh, Houston kind of abandoned the low resistance switches. Like they actually made Oklahoma City like make contact on their screens and Oklahoma City kind of like didn't figure that out. Um, yeah. so that, that'll be something to watch. I'm sure OKC will have something for that now after having watched the film. Yeah. That's definitely the biggest weakness of a, of a switch everything scheme is that, well, they'll just, the, they'll just force you to switch non-threatening actions and leave you in horrible matchups with 20 still on the clock. And so that, that's the right response from Houston. I'm surprised that that actually wasn't just part of what they did, <laughs> you know, as a, as a regular yeah. thing, but bit better late than ever, right? What's up, sports fans? Matt Peck here, host of Locked On Bulls, and I want to talk to you really quickly about another excellent podcast. Huge Fan is a new Sirius XM original podcast where stars talk sports. 
Each week, join host LaChina Robinson as she chats with your favorite celebs about childhood sports memories, game day rituals, the most heated rivalries, and more. And this new season features huge names like Anthony Ramos from In the Heights and Hamilton, Pat Carney from the Black Keys, Mel C, that's right, a.k.a. Sporty Spice from the Spice Girls, and even actress Michelle Williams talking about her love for our very own Chicago Bulls. Huge Fan is a fresh way to connect with your favorite artists, actors, and personalities about something we all understand, fandom. Huge Fan is now out on Pandora, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Um, any players that have really surprised you in the last week or so? Well, I mean, I mean, other than Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think maybe lower in the food chain where uh, people want like a little, a little deeper analysis than that perhaps sure um, um, well i will say this about murray though like this is you know they never used him coming off of screens that's kind of what he did at kentucky but we haven't seen just everything is a long two from him anymore like he's finally yeah. taking the volume of threes that i thought i thought he when he got drafted i was like this guy could be like a steph curry light and we haven't really seen that mm-hmm. from him but now you know he's taken 12 threes a game and you know, that's really is like done wonders for his efficiency. So it's making 75% of them in the last game. But yeah, it, you know, he, he's now, and, and then that opens up more space for him to drive as well, rather than, you know, it being kind of the handoff game with Jokic in some ways, not being tethered to Jokic and those handoffs, because like when they do the Jokic handoffs, he's coming off of that at 20 feet from the basket, right? Like they're not doing that beyond the three point line because they want Jokic to be able to drive and have some of those backdoor passing angles. So now he's actually beyond the three-point line and, of course, making those shots as well. It's really changed a lot for him. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's just been an impressive transformation. Now, the, the next step, obviously, is you ask yourself, is this the beginning of something here? Is this like... Is this like him becoming that max player that they paid him to be? Is this is this something that's sustainable for next year? I don't think the percentages are sustainable, but him taking threes at volume, that sure feels like it's sustainable if he wants it to be, isn't it? I hope so. And, you know, we'll see what happens when Harris and Barton are back. You know, Barton is going to kind of need some reps. I, I think my thought would be probably move Barton to a six-man role. They'll probably try and start Porter and like get him up to speed a little bit defensively. I guess, you know, Grant, the way he shot the ball, it's got to be very encouraging for them. Like he'll probably be yeah. back now. Um, yeah. They'll have full bird rights on him. They probably let Millsap go at this point. Millsap and, and your guy Plumley, I think, will both be gone. Yeah. Um, trying to think of who else has been a, a, a pleasant surprise. Oh, I got the guy. Yeah. The, the Zoobster. Evita Zubots. Most underrated player in the league. Um, well, Jovan Buha would say he was this guy the whole time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and yeah, he has shown more mobility, like executing that scheme, particularly in game five when he was like way out on the floor against Doncic. I, I thought that looked pretty good. Uh, but he's, I mean, at least in his Clipper days, like he has been very difficult to score on around the rim. And so I, I think when, particularly with Harold coming off of that, uh, absence, the uh, personal absence. I thought that he would be their best match in the series. Yeah, I guess the, uh, he's probably even exceeded my expectations, though, with how much he's bothered Doncic around the rim in this series. And to me, if he can hold up in a series like that, he can hold up in almost any series. 
Now, granted, there wasn't Porzingis after after you know for the second half of the series, which made his life a little easier because getting out to that pick and pop is hard for him. But I mean, he is a just a good starting center. Um, and in the Lakers' defense, I think those two months of Mike Muscala that they got really you know really helped that team a lot to become the top seed in the West this year. Well, so. actually, to be honest, I can't remember how. I think Muscala might have been like injured or something. But mm-hmm. it, but to actually not have Zubats. They lost a bunch of games down the end of last year, and then they got the number four pick, which they then traded for Anthony Davis. So, hey, maybe you're right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> In a roundabout way, I suppose they they made out all right from that then. Yeah, that's true. They had the much higher pick to uh, to put in the trade. Uh, I will say another good coaching thing from Doc Rivers was putting Zubats on Finney Smith rather than whoever the center was, like Kleba. And it wasn't even necessarily uh, – you know, that like Finney Smith is a worse shooter than Kleba. It's more that he's not as good as a role man as mm-hmm. Kleba is. And so combined with Porzingis, and they had already taken Zubats off Porzingis uh, in game three. So that was really, I think it has enabled him to be better as well and hang out around the rim more. And then, um, you know, those traps work better when it's Finney Smith having to make the play, um, you know, instead of uh, Kleba just like rolling right down the lane for a dunk. Yeah. Still need another playmaker in Dallas, I think. I mean, they're an awesome offensive team, but having having one more guy who could, like, a better version of Seth Curry, <laughs> right, would would really help them. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, they got a lot from Curry and Burke. I think they got enough from those guys offensively mm-hmm. at times in this series. But to also have a guy who can hold up a little bit defensively. I mean, I think I still would prioritize – getting someone who can defend on the wing and hit a shot maybe more than a playmaker. Like, I, I don't know if I'd they agree with that part. Yeah, yeah. Because they just, uh, particularly if you're going to have to go up against this Clippers team, and maybe this Clippers team will be by the time Dallas is really ascendant two years from now, the Clippers will kind of be on the downside, but they obviously had no, no chance against Quilard who still to me looks like he's when it's all said and done is going to be the best player in these playoffs. Just an absolute beast. Could you believe that? running hook shot he made where he just held the ball up in the air and then just flicked it from like 11 feet he threw it in like a baseball yeah it was unbelievable (laughs) i i was doing the the live show and i just went completely apeshit when i saw that like poor poor trey burke you know gets mismatched against him actually does a good job forces it forces him into a shot that is like 90% miss for anyone else in the universe. <laughs> and, and Kawhi just flicks in this crazy thing. Um, any other players that, that have stuck out to you as being uh, positive surprises? Positive surprises. Um, you know, Miami got more mileage from Tyler Harrow in that first round than I expected. Uh, he's definitely a little vulnerable defensively. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to him in that Milwaukee series. But his shooting and the fact that he can, you know, make plays off the dribble too. I mean, there were times where they finished games with him and not Duncan Robinson. I think two of the four games they did, right? I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his mid-range shooting, I think, will be an important source of offense for them on the second unit when they can't score any other way in this series. Um, Anyone who disappointed you? Uh, Yeah. Um. You know, Chris Middleton was kind of low-key awful in that first round. We we got to see if there's something there. I mean, that's one of the things you're asking questions about if you're a Buck Stouter, right? Huh. 
Yeah, you make a good point there. I and mean, he's they're gonna have a chance to like get him the matchup in this series against Robinson or Hero or Dragic, and he's gonna need to beat that matchup. Yeah. Um I would say Gary Trent Jr., as good as he was in the seeding games, was pretty bad in the Lakers series. Um still like showed some moments of defensive metal where where you don't really see a whole lot of that from the rest of the Portland team. Uh still like his future, but it was definitely like a cautionary tale to not get too high on him. No, I, I agree with you there. I mean, he's, but if he can hit shots and at least be even a decent defender, he'll give them more at that position going forward than they've had. And he's also, was this his second year? So he's, yeah, he's only, he's only 21. I mean, he was super young when he came out. Um, yeah. so yeah, de- definitely a bright future there. A guy, I mean, they should seriously think about starting him next year. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they do that or start a Reza or Rodney Hood or somebody. Um, Darius Baisley has impressed me. I think he can be a, a, a solid piece for them going forward. Like the way he's hit shots, his confidence handling the ball, it's going to have to get better defensively, but it, like he kind of just looks big out there. Like he looks power forward size. He looks, you know, he's really improved his athleticism. You know, he clearly made very good use of the time off. Yeah. He's filled out a lot physically from when he was a high school senior uh, and was just all skin and bones. And I think that's made a big difference for him. Yeah, those New Balance workouts, baby. So, <laughs> Is that the um, key? <laughs> okay, uh, let's. Uh, but I do want to ask you about what happens when your team gets eliminated in a season. But let's uh, let's do an MVP and first team all playoffs. MVP as of two weeks in here. MVP and first team all playoffs. Wow. Okay. Uh, my playoff MVP. Uh, I'm actually going to go with Anthony Davis. I thought he over was over Kawhi. I thought he was incredible. Oh man, that's tough to go against Kawhi, right? Uh, I, th- I thought Davis was really good defensively, and I thought he was awesome offensively too. Um, yeah, but th- the quality of competition is a factor. You're right. Yeah, and Kawhi is also he's been guarding Luca in some of these matchups as well. Like it, when it really mattered, I mean, he guarded Luca as the main guy once Morris got ejected. Mm-hmm. I mean, they completely took care of Dallas with two starters out. I know they're missing Porzingis, but like that game wasn't particularly close. Like, and he, yeah. I mean, and he's also been the most consistent. Like, he hasn't had any bad games, so he would probably be the guy to me, particularly because I just I still believe that he is has is the best player in the NBA right now. So that's I mean, I'm so excited already for if we get Clippers Bucks and Kawhi versus Giannis again. I mean that that's the matchup I want to see. Oh man, it's it's going to be so good. Uh. I mean, Murray and Mitchell have got to be in there, obviously. Yeah. At this point, they're they're automatic first team all playoffs, I would say. So I got Kawhi, Mitchell, Murray, Davis as as four of my five. So I just have to choose a, a fifth starter. Then, yeah. Who, um, who are some of our other candidates? And we got Giannis, we got LeBron, uh, Luca. Oh, it's got. It's, I think it's got to be Luca. I think it's, it's got to be Luca. Yeah. Yeah. Again, considering the level of the competition he played. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and, and AD, LeBron, like AD defensively, I do feel you because that, that is a good Portland offense that they pretty much just shut down completely. Even, even in the four game games, one. yeah, games two, three, four, Portland couldn't do anything against them. I do think the Blazers ran out of gas a little bit, but they took a lot away, took away a lot of stuff that other teams had trouble taking away. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so from a front office perspective, your team is either eliminated from the playoffs or it's just the, the end of the season. What do you do? What What is that process like with like exit interviews, evaluating what happened? Just take me through what you're thinking about from a front office perspective once your season ends. Yeah. So each team has their own special sauce a little bit 
for how they handle it. But in general, you have either the day after or two days after, you have all the players come in. They meet with the coaches. They meet with the front office. Um, the exit interviews are usually relatively quick. You you should have your straight your the biggest thing is your uh, strength team or your trainer or whoever is in charge of your uh, physical development for the players has already produced their off season plan, uh, given it to them, and so the players when they leave town, which most of them will, uh, they're already sort of hit the ground running. Um, you communicate, especially with the younger players, what the expectations are. You know, when do you need to be back to start practicing for summer league? When do, um, when, when do we want you to be in town to work out with the coaches? Where are you going to be? Are you going to go to Gerg's camp or, you know, are you going to play FIBA ball if you're an international guy? Um, just, just sort of talking through what, what the off season is going to be like. And usually you have a script for this, especially. If if you don't make the playoffs, you usually know before the last day of the season. So uh, you you should have this all scripted out. Some teams uh, that that are in the lottery, they they actually already have their exit interviews done before the last game, even, and so everyone could just kind of be free to go. What, then, one two three Cancun. Yeah, yeah, is, is exactly. That, is that part of the exit interviews? Like, <laughs> hey, you know, Br- British Virgin Islands or uh, <laughs> you know, St. Thomas, uh, Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, most of these guys do actually uh, take a break at that at that point, like right after the season. They they'll take a break and go somewhere like that, literally. Uh, give themselves a week, two weeks, whatever, allow their bodies to recover. Now it varies a little bit uh, because you have longer for your off season, obviously, if you're eliminated right away, versus if you make a deep playoff run. Uh, it gets it gets tricky for the young guys to give because they have a very short time between the end of the season and when they got to start doing things to be ready for summer league. Uh, and even for, even for the veteran guys, it's a compressed off season. So it changes some things. So and it definitely varies a little because of that, but in, in general, everybody's itching to just get out of town. And so you, you try to handle it as expeditiously as possible, but you want to, you want to talk about, talk about the, the season. It's not that you're not talking to these guys during the season, but it's just a chance to kind of take stock of everything that happened and kind of look back and re- and review everything and kind of see where everyone's heads are before you split for the summer. Yeah. And I would imagine that as you're in the course of fighting for something, trying to acknowledge, like, you know, having a conversation with a player about like, Hey, you know what? Like I've, I really felt like the coaching staff wasn't doing this that well or something like that would be, uh, you can't really have that conversation when they're still in the midst of fighting for something with that coaching staff. And then you can really take stock afterwards. I mean, is that, is that a big part of it? Just like, hey, what can we do better? Or just like hard conversations about, you know, things that need to improve with the coaching staff or the system. And, and yeah. do you have players who are like, hey, you know what? I felt like I wasn't used the way I wanted to be used. Like, is that is it like that level of like real honest talk? Or is it more just like, eh, let's here's what we're doing for it, the offseason? It, it can be. Um, it depends on the player, too. Uh, some of them, you really got to peel back the layers of the onion and. Others are just very <laughs> frank with you, right? It, you know, yeah. it's to different people, but uh, it it is an opportunity, I think. I think to find out about some things that maybe people weren't were more reluctant to comment on in in the heat of battle. And then we'd always ask questions about ourselves uh, too. What can we do better as a front office as an organization? Um, uh, my my first year there. Uh, 
like four or five different players asked us a particular thing about uh, having food in the player lounge. And we were like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> I guess, I, I guess that's something that where, where we weren't doing as well as other teams. And, uh, so we, we'll ask questions like that. If a player was trading in season, we'll ask them, uh, what was your experience coming here and the onboarding and everything. So it, you just find out different things about how you're doing as an organization. And, you know, if you're really doing it right, you're doing exit interviews with the staff too, uh, cause, that's often where you'll find out more stuff than even when you do it with the players. Is there a concern that if you as a front office are meeting with players or like lower level assistants that you're like circumventing the head coach? You, I don't think so. I mean, you, you just have to be upfront about what's happening and why, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if people are going to be, if somebody's paranoid, you can't fix that. But I, th- I think if yeah. you have a good, uh, relationship, you can understand what's happening and why you're having these conversations and, and, and what they're about. Like at the end of the day, like you're, it's up to you to manage the team, right? So that's, that's part of managing the team. I mean, if you, do you ever have a player who's just like fucking hate these coaches, like get rid of them? Uh, no comment. <laughs> All right. That, that's, a, that's a good one to end on, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, we talked a lot about what you wrote about at the athletic. Also, you got a week left to subscribe to my new subscription podcast. It's going to be four days a week at dunked on now, uh, that we're taking it subscription. That's dunked on dot supporting FM. We're offering special pricing until it launches on September 8th. And, uh, we'll be back next Monday. Talk to y'all then. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At bet three, six, five, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.